Hello and welcome to not the SRA podcast, but an addendum to the SRA podcast for the very special Patreon supporters. Now, this will be a little special that this first episode will be released to the general public for listening pleasure of everyone. However, this is the first in a series of podcasts that episodes that I'm hoping to put out that are topic-based, basically, that we'll be exploring specific topics in relation to leftism, in relation to firearms, in relation to whatever, just single-topic episodes giving a little bit more insight into these topics than we might be able to on a regular episode of the podcast where we have to keep things limited for the sake of time, lest we go on forever and ever. Um, not coincidentally, though kind of coincidentally in how the scheduling came about, you might also see in your podcast feeds, depending on what other podcasts you listen to, that another set of podcasts is doing this very same thing, that the Revolutionary Left podcast and the Guillotine podcast, headed by the good Breton Bones, are also doing a similar thing for their Patreon supporters. Um, the, I think this is one of those times of uh, dual biogenesis, but I think it's a pretty common thing out of there in the podcast world to produce special episodes on these things. And uh, the way scheduling worked out, uh, these are going to come out at about the same time. Uh, they'll be releasing their first one later today, I believe, on this Sunday. And hopefully I get this out the same day as well. Uh, I shout them out because me and Faye, who will be joining me for this very special episode, uh, were recently hi, interviewed. Oh, yes. Hi. Uh, were, were very recently interviewed on their very special episode for Revolutionary Left podcast as well as the guillotine. So if you have both me in your subscription feed as well as them in your subscription feed, you'll be hearing our luxurious voices as well over there. We did have a very great interview. They were great interviewers. And it was it was a really good time over there talking about the SRA, talking about what people can do to protect themselves and their communities during disaster events and things of that nature. It was a really good interview, and I really urge you guys to check them out um, if you haven't, if you don't already listen to them. Again, the Revolutionary Left Radio and the Guillotine Podcast are excellent productions by Brett and Bones that are just top notch podcast material i try to listen to every episode as soon as i can when they come out now since kind of talked over Faye back there uh here's the proper introduction for our special guest slash special host Faye. uh welcoming back for this very special episode thank you for having on having me on once again alex so yes this is the very special episode for the patrons and for this time the general public providing the single topic issues and this episode's topic will be intersectionality. So, uh, to dispel some immediate disillusions some people may have when they hear the term intersectionality, uh, this is meant to look at it in the theoretical as well as the practical sense. Thanks, Alex. So, for those, for those who are unfamiliar, intersectionality is an uh, analytical framework uh, that was developed in the early 1990s. Um, it was developed by primarily by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, uh, a a noted a noted civil rights advocate and a scholar of critical race theory. She is a black woman, um, 
And uh, it was further developed throughout the 90s by Patricia Hill Collins, who was uh, a emeritus professor at the uh, University of Cincinnati and is now at the University of Maryland College Park. Uh, And these two women, these two black women, developed uh, the idea of approaching uh, issues of racism and sexism through a intersectional lens. Now, what that means is we have systems of oppression in our society. Um, you know, capitalism is the main one that we talk about on this podcast as socialists. But obviously, of course, there are the oppressive institutions of uh, the oppressive systems of racism and sexism, of gender discrimination, and also of uh, heterosexism and transphobia. And uh, for a very long time, most of these issues were studied uh, in isolation. They were looked at with a critical lens, purely looking at how gender related uh, is related to society and the oppression of women is related to society or how, uh, how racism affects society. But there hadn't been done, um, there had not been very much study on how these systems intersect. So uh, in the case of uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, she studied the case of a woman at General Motors uh, by the name of Emma de Graffenfried. And um, uh, Emma was a black woman uh, who applied for a job at General Motors and was turned down. And she felt that this was unjust. She felt that she had been discriminated against because she was a black woman. Uh, so she took she took her case to federal court and uh, she said General Motors does employ black men in their industrial manufacturing, you know, dirty work sort of jobs. Uh, and General Motors does employ women, white women in their offices and clerical positions, but General Motors does not employ black women in any significant way. This therefore would constitute discrimination against black women. The judge of that federal court said, I don't believe you and I don't care. They have black employees, they have female employees, therefore how could they be discriminating against black and female employees? And her case was thrown out of court. And this is what led Crenshaw to uh, develop her theory of intersectionality, is seeing how the intersection of racism and the intersection of sexism combined to disenfranchise Emma de Graffenried in particular. Yes, and this is something that I think even beyond uh, what we normally think of as uh, the big things of intersectionality, like this exact instance where people of color are more discriminated against and then women are more discriminated against. And so by combining together, you get a societal situation where there is even a worse discrimination. Uh, And certainly you can create a many Venn diagrams, as it were, of these situations where you have these different groups that because everyone has so many different aspects to them that society looks at and judges them by, that this can create different situations for everyone, uh, depending on where they fall in this Venn diagram. Um, and I, I think a thing that has come on the internet, and I'd like to ward away and ass- kind of touch upon briefly uh, not to provide it more significance than it needs to have because i do think at this point it is a dying cliche but it's just stuck with me from uh, my days of that sort of internet discourse that uh, nobody's trying to play the oppression olympics here Uh, that's a really derogatory term that's 
honestly more often used by the right than anything else. Uh, there is no thing here where somebody's saying, well, I, I have this many labels and you only have that many labels. And so therefore I'm the more oppressed individual here. And therefore I, I deserve more or something. That's a conservative meme that we have allowed to get into our discourse. And it, it has no basis in reality, to be quite frank. The Beyond some occasional outliers that people can find by digging through the deepest, darkest depths of Tumblr. Um, what matters here is being able to have an analytical discussion of these matters. And exactly like in the situation of, uh, of a worker trying to find employment and then the court throwing it out because they could not see the fact that there was overlap between two different areas of protected classes or classes that have been historically marginalized. It's exactly that that we're working to understand, comprehend, and provide some mechanism in the system to alleviate those concerns and the problems that come with these protected classes versus some someone on the internet trying to make some argument that honestly usually just exists in somebody else's imagination. Definitely. And uh, so to really start this discussion off, I think maybe we need to step back a bit from intersectionality per se and discuss uh, some Marxist theory, specifically the idea of class consciousness. So... Uh, class consciousness is an idea that um, Karl Marx wrote about frequently um, and spoke about. It's mentioned in the Communist Manifesto and in other works. And uh, class consciousness is basically the acknowledgement. It's basically um, class consciousness is when a working class individual, someone who is in the economic class where their labor is exploited by the owners of private property and capital, when they become aware of their exploitation, they become aware of themselves as individuals being exploited by the capitalist system and understand their place within that system. By achieving class consciousness, a working class person uh, can therefore, um, they can better understand what actions need to be taken to improve their lives and the lives of other people within the working class. Without class consciousness, um, Without class consciousness, people tend to have very individualistic ways of looking at uh, solving the problems in their lives. They think, oh, I'm, I'm not making enough money. You know, this job sucks. I just need to find a better job. Or, oh, I lost my home. Or I lost, you know, uh, I lost my source of income. I need charity to help me uh, out of this situation. And while those may very well be short-term things that they can do to that they need to improve their situation, that won't solve the underlying economic causes of their hardship. Only by attaining class consciousness can someone understand uh, how the system is impacting them, and only by understanding the system can they fight against it. So class consciousness is very important. It comes up all the time in revolutionary uh, Marxist theory, um, teaching the working class to understand their exploitation and fight against it is really the basis of leftist organizing uh, and has been for basically the entire history of Marxism. I think that this concept of class consciousness, uh, especially in today's America, is uh, hard for some people to initially get a grasp on 
just because there has been such a targeted attack against any of this sort of thing. That uh, this idea of class consciousness of a united workers' struggle has been so vehemently targeted in the United States, exactly because it is such a powerful concept that we saw beginning to emerge in the late 19th century to early 20th century here in America, especially with efforts like the labor movement, uh, with not only uh, trade unionism, but then also the industrial workers of the world and the idea of this one big union for the one big class. Uh, and, of course, because this is such a frightening concept to those who would stand to lose from a collective working class working in concert with itself, um, uh, American ideals have been twisted and distorted over the years into what we now see today of uh, this very strong, uh, almost libertarian ideal. Uh, individualistic mentality that it's every man for himself that who cares if your boss exploits you and makes a dollar while you make a dime because one day you're going to be the boss and then you'll be making the dollar and it's exactly these sort of tactics and then the creation of the middle class which is no class at all but just a uh, veneer to convince the working class that there is something to aspire to that is not the capitalist class that that has really hurt uh, class consciousness here in America. And even more so than, uh, than through the creation of artificial classes such as the middle class um, is the issue of alienation. People are alienated from others in their lives. Workers are alienated by uh, structural structures, both large and small, which separate them from other workers and from other people within their class. Even, uh, even just looking at the architecture of a corporate office, you look into a corporate office and you have row upon row of gray cubicle. Each cubicle has one individual in it, and the individuals are separated from each other by a wall. Maybe not a floor-to-ceiling wall, but they are separated from each other physically as well as mentally. And so by dividing the working class up, and this applies also to retail, where employees are not allowed to talk to each other, they aren't allowed to rest, to sit down and talk to each other. In the manufacturing, where people are kept too busy to talk to each other, and where uh, oftentimes so like socializing is discouraged, people are kept isolated from each other. They don't hear about each other's struggles. They don't hear about each other's needs. And without hearing about other people being in the same situation as you are, it is so easy to blame yourself. It's so easy to just accept that this is the way it is and this is the way that it has to be. When you are an isolated individual alone in the world, that makes you very easy to control by systemic means. And that is one of the most toxic aspects of neoliberal capitalism in particular. Anti-trade anti unionism, anti-workers uh, anti organizations, anti-communism, anti those have been around for a long time, but neoliberalism and the alienation that it promotes has been really destructive, I feel, to the soul of the working class, as it were. Certainly. It's it's a fascinating study in and of itself, but not one we'll delve too deeply into. <laughs> That's a rabbit hole. Yes, except for the purposes of this discussion. Um, and I think that 
transition us right into the second building block of this discussion on intersectionality, which is identity politics, kind of this uh, perhaps response to the uh, deterioration of the class consciousness here in America. Uh, in some ways, a response in some ways that has its own unique and rich history that uh, rather than having a class consciousness like what Karl Marx wrote about with the working class having its own class consciousness, identity politics, at least in my readings, has been more along the lines of various people group lines. So be it uh, ethnicity, nationality, so uh, identity politics of either the uh, African population that came to America in the form of slaves brought over from Africa, or even situations like immigrants, immigrants who come from their own native country and coming to form uh, identity groups amongst themselves in a new land, uh, as well as any other, any other uh, classification you can pretty much come up with, that any sort of group that people can be sorted into one way or the other, uh, identity politics can emerge from within that group based around their particular identity that they self-identify as. Exactly. And this is most strongly, uh, this is most strongly seen and most strongly opposed in the LGBTQ community. Uh, identity politics is often used by right-wingers and by, unfortunately, by some people on the left as a dig against uh, against queer people and people of minority racial groups or ethnicities who seek to band together and find uh, common struggles that they share with others. And But when it comes down to it, when you live in a bourgeois capitalist state, the only real politics that exists is identity politics. Because the uh, machinations of the corporate world and the machinations of, uh, of uh, government spending are so heavily controlled by capital interests, the only real way for individuals to fight for their place in society is through banding together along uh, shared identity. Gay people, uh, LGB people, were able to achieve marriage equality by banding together uh, into the LGBT movement and fighting for their rights by standing together Together and you know, under the rainbow flag, and uh, going out into the world and talking about who they are, about this part of themselves that made them uniquely vulnerable within our society. And when you when you think about it, that kind of sounds familiar. You know, people banding together around their common struggles, identifying the uh, systems of oppression that affect them. You know, it's almost like uh, it's almost like they're grouping themselves into classes of people based on their shared oppression, much like, uh, say, I don't know, a random group like workers might band together around the common oppression that they face from uh, capitalists. When it gets down to it, class consciousness is a form of identity politics. I could agree with that, yeah. I do feel that when it comes between... It, it might be one of those situations of the square and the rectangle that are squares on rectangles but rectangles are not always squares and so in this same sense that identity politics and class consciousness i i almost hesitate to say which is a square and which is the rectangle because both can 
be applied to each other, I think, in very powerful ways. Uh, I, if I had to look at it, I'd probably put the class character or the class consciousness as the overarching theory that envelops things like identity politics. But because an identity can be so strongly associated with a class, at the same time, I almost would say the identity politics should come first and then the class. Because within identity politics, and I think this is an important thing that reason why we have to have intersectionality and one of the things that uh, liberal politicians and liberal free thinkers quote unquote uh, talk about is this idea of promoting a twisted form of identity politics that is not aware of class culture and class consciousness uh, in the example I'm thinking of here is that in an identity politics situation, uh, again, we have a group of people that have come together around a shared common identity. So in this instance, uh, let us look at the, yes, the LGBT community. Um, it's a relevant topic here in Wichita right now, Wichita pride is going on. And uh, Wichita Pride, unfortunately, has a lot of corporate sponsors and such with it. There's a actually a Starbucks booth this time around right next to the Wichita DSA booth. Um, and it's one of these things that uh, identity politics says uh, sometimes without the ability of intersectionality to apply multiple different frameworks and multiple different thought processes to the same issue can sometimes ignore the idea that, okay, it's great that Starbucks is here at Pride and they're supporting the LGBT community and they're really, uh, really helping the community out and they're very pro-LGBT and they have really good progressive policies for their employees as far as LGBT individuals go. Uh, but at the same time, this is what we would call rainbow capitalism. This is not... Uh, solving the fundamental issue here that uh, no matter how much progressive dressing one can put on the greater issue, um, there still has to be a class consciousness there to be able to say it doesn't matter if we have uh, an equality of all demographics at the executive level because the fundamental issue here is that the executive's by the nature of their class, by the nature of the class struggle between the working class and the capitalist class, will always seek to oppress the workers below them and enrich themselves, no matter their shared identity politics. More female CEOs won't solve the issue of women being exploited under capitalism. And that's sort of really what it comes down to is... Uh, I would say that the distinction between class consciousness and identity politics is potentially not even a useful one, not to say that they're exactly the same thing, but perhaps we need a larger frame through which we can study these two ideas. And I think intersectionality offers us a path to doing so. Um, intersectionality, seeing how systems of oppression overlap and interact, seeing how class interacts with racism and sexism can tell us a lot about the underlying structures uh, of our society and how we can fix them. So there has been a significant study done on this already. I believe I mentioned before Dr. P uh, Patricia Collins. 
um, she did a great deal of study of the material aspects of the intersection between between race, gender, and class. And, uh, you know, studying how uh, racism distorts the labor market, seeing how sexism distorts the labor market and how these things interact. And she was able to develop some pretty interesting perspectives on the, of the material ways that these systems oppress uh, minority individuals. However, what hasn't really been done, especially due to the prevalence of what I would call liberal feminism in America, liberal feminism has... Uh, provided some material analysis of the way that race and gender and sex heterosexism and transphobia interact and overlap with class. But there hasn't been much in the way, at least in the popular consciousness, of an understanding of how these identities themselves interact. How does the identity of a worker intersect with the idea, with the identity of being Black or the identity of being trans? How do these identities interact with each other, um, not just in the material world, but also in the... Uh, how do these ideas intersect within the classes that hold them, within the groups that hold these identities? And so one thing that I think we need to look at as socialists, we, I, like you said, Alex, there's this sort of division between class consciousness and identity politics, I think it needs to be studied in how these uh, ideas interact and how the idea of belonging to a minority group can be expanded to apply to the idea of belonging to an oppressed economic class and how that might be able to be used to build socialism or at least to build a socialist movement. So, uh, for instance, one of the main issues, like you said, with rainbow capitalism there's this issue where, you know, uh, LGBTQ people are discriminated against um, throughout the world, less so in America now than it used to be, but it's still a problem. And so many queer people have this uh, experience of discrimination. However, the experience of economic oppression is not equal across the LGBTQ community because there are extremely wealthy and successful queer people who have managed to achieve positions of power and uh, positions of wealth without that. For instance, Peter Thiel, the techno-libertarian neo-feudalist who supported Donald Trump and uh, uh, consumes the blood of virile young men to prolong his life. Uh, And uh, these individuals obviously can never have class consciousness, at least they cannot have a working class class consciousness because the class that they belong to is the bourgeoisie. Peter Thiel is the most bourgeois gay person on earth, and I'm sure that he is very conscious of his class as a, uh, as a master, as a lord of capital. So how can that person who has such a fundamentally different relationship to the economy, how can that person truly have solidarity with an oppressed queer person who is in the working class, who is struggling to survive, struggling to work, to put food on the table? How can they really have solidarity? Is there really, can there really be solidarity between, uh, between extremely wealthy black people and and extremely poor black people. How much of a shared identity uh, really is there? Yes, and I would say as far as looking looking at that and looking back at my struggle to define, well, which which comes first, class consciousness or uh, identity politics, and I think that does play into the bigger issue that this might be one of those situations of we're looking at a case where the big and the small don't apply the same 
perhaps, as individuals in the physics world might be familiar with, and we need a unifying theory to be able to handle this. And I do think intersectionality provides that unifying framework to be able to take a look at this exact problem and be able to say, how how do we approach this? Uh, who Who can understand the struggles of another? And I'd argue that in many ways, uh, everyone's struggle is their own, and it's all varying gradients of how far removed are you from another person's struggle. But uh, there is very much a difference in quantity becomes a difference in kind that you become eventually so sufficiently removed from understanding what someone else is going through that it becomes near impossible to have sympathy or or to have true understanding of what's going on um i think in peter thiel's example uh i think it's a good example because Peter Thiel is an individual who is deeply involved with the system of capital, of course, has had many, many different scandals and whatnot. But his existence, his role in society is so drastically removed from those who would be in his identity politics, those in the LGBT community, that it's obvious from just a rudimentary look at this man that, uh, I mean, he's more or less a real-life vampire. Uh, this is just the, to the point of absurdity of how truly different he has become from your average uh, queer bartender working at Starbucks because Starbucks is this magical progressive place that, spoiler alert, it isn't, but... um I think applying that to the bigger picture of things beyond the LGBT community and applying it to things like uh, other minority groups, other racial minorities, other ethnic minorities, uh, religious minorities even. Um, Obviously, we want to seek to promote equality and fair representation across society, but at the same time, Uh, We can look at something like the Supreme Court. Uh, Clarence Thomas being on the Supreme Court, uh, great for representation, a great moment for for the black community to have representation on the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, this doesn't change the fact that Clarence Thomas is uh, very much part of the ruling class, very much part of even the capitalist class. He is not a poor man, nor was he before he was on the court. There's also a uh, there's also an interest, interesting tie into uh, intersectionality with gender there, and that when Anita Hill accused Clarence Thomas of um, of sexual harassment in the workplace while she was a clerk working under him. Um, Many men in the black community attacked Anita Hill verbally and uh, and described her as a as a as a Jezebel or as a as a race traitor as someone who was holding back the progress of the African American community because she was accusing this privileged black man of sexual assault and perhaps stymieing stymieing the chance of getting a black man on the Supreme Court. In this case, 
uh, Anita Hill ended up suffering oppression from her own racial group, her own uh, identity group of, of Black Americans, turning against her because of her role as a woman who was sexually assaulted uh, or sexually harassed by this privileged Black man. And so she was attacked by the Black community, or at least by portions of it, in addition to uh, being attacked um be, uh, being attacked and being ignored uh, because she was a black woman accusing a powerful individual of sexual misconduct. Well, and let's not forget the other famous example also coming from roughly this same time period that uh, for if we're looking for where intersectionality is very much needed is a situation like the Clinton family with uh, Bill and Hillary that Bill uh, will go ahead and put it out on the record. Uh, Bill's n- not the greatest guy uh, uh, as as a socialist. He's kind of a piece of shit. He is kind of a piece of shit. Uh, he's not a good guy. He's just really not. He's he's kind of awful. And uh, he's had multiple he's had multiple accusers come before him. Uh, they've won in court, in civil court, against him. He had to give up his license for a while to practice law because of this. And at the same time, Hillary, whose only interest is her own political career, was willing to go on public television and call these women liars and parlots, basically. Yes. So we have this situation where, and I think this is important, I think that the wealthy in America, I think that the bourgeoisie in America do have the class consciousness that the working class lacks. And I think that they're willing to stand together and uh, defend each other um, when it, at least when it suits their personal interests. I think there is a class consciousness among the wealthy in this country. And in the meantime, the working class is divided between different identities, which force them to sympathize and align themselves with wealthy members of their own identity group. You know, LGBT people, um, you know, trans people being associated with, for instance, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, who's the most bourgeois, detestable trans person on the face of the earth, honestly, um, where their identity is associated with people who really really don't share their struggles in any meaningful way. And I think that I think that it might be I think that it might be a useful approach to invert the idea of identity politics. It might be worthwhile to invert the idea of class consciousness and instead of looking at the traits that working class people share and the traits that uh black people and LGBTQ people and that women share, it might be worthwhile instead to look at the traits shared by the people who oppress us. It might be worthwhile to construct an identity to place upon the people who have worked so hard to destroy the shared identity of the working class. I think that this was one of the most beneficial outcomes of the Occupy protest, the prevalence of the phrase, the 1%. The 1% is not a group that very many people willingly identify as, even if they are obviously materially in it. Very few people would describe themselves favorably as being a member of the 1%. However, being able to identify your class enemy, being able to identify the people that are oppressing you, even if you haven't yet developed class consciousness 
with your uh, fellow workers, even if you haven't, um, even if you, uh, even if you haven't recognized your enemies within the identity group that you share, whether that be Peter Thiel among queer people, or people like Clarence Thomas among the Black community, or Hillary Clinton uh, with regards to women, um, even though people, even if people haven't recognized what they share with the other oppressed people around them, I think that a great way to build that solidarity is to identify and. Uh, and st- is to identify the people who oppress you because the greatest uh, aspect of intersectionality is that we're all being oppressed uh, in the grand scheme of things by many of the same people. And the systems which are used to oppress us are enforced by the same few people. So maybe the correct way to uh, bring class consciousness and identity politics and intersectionality together is to build identities that people can oppose rather than creating yet more identities and yet more uh, classes that people can divide themselves into. That might be a hot take. I'll have to listen to it later. Yeah, I'm not sure if the exact answer is more divisions within the various communities that uh, I think leftism is no stranger to just how fast that rabbit hole gets out of hand. But I can't work with you. You're an anarchist. (laughs) I can't work with you. You're a Marxist Leninist. Actually, I am an anarcho primitist. So I reject all other forms of anarchy that does not involve me fertilizing my farmland with my own shit. So, if you don't believe in that, (laughs) anyways, now that I've offended some members of our audience, uh, we, I think it is, I think it is good to close on this idea that we have to find solutions that work for us. And we have to find solutions that work for the people around us and the communities that we're in and society as a whole. Uh, Sticking to purely theoretical bases it's it's a good place to start. It's a good place to read the theory. It's good to see the quote-unquote science behind all this. But you have to go and put it out into application. It's the difference between being a scholar and being somebody out on the streets making things happen. They both have their places. There has to be someone who can put this into a formal written sense As Marx put it, the point of philosophy is not merely to study the world, but to change it. Precisely. And there must be somebody who can go out into the world and enact these things. It's why we have scientists, and then we have engineers, and then we have technicians, and then we have uh, maintenance folks and workers, and all the way down the train. There's a certain level of specialization at every point in development of anything, be it you're making a widget or you're causing societal change. And so I think looking at these things through the lenses of intersectionality, it doesn't mean going up and, as I've seen it derisively called on conservative Twitter, uh, oppression merit badges. Oh, I've got my merit badge. I've, I'm a, uh, I'm an oppressed individual in this place and this place and this place, whatever. It's, it's missing... It's missing the point completely of what intersectionality is, and that is very much a conservative meme, and let us it not pollute our discourse on the left, because it is concocted in their imaginations 
with straw men and just the regular outliers that you can find in any particular group of people uh, on any political discourse. Um, it is intersectionality at the end of the day is about me being able to go to somebody else and have a, have a good discussion about what affects me, what affects them, what affects us both and finding out what needs to be done because of that. What is the unique situations for the both of us? What similar ground can be found between the both of us? I totally agree, Alex. We really need to find what unites us, whether that be the systems of oppression around us or the individuals who oppress us. We need to find the things that unite us and bring us together as uh, as people and uh, I certainly think that the idea of identity politics being a divisive thing is largely overblown, particularly on the left, particularly among certain largely non-minority segments of the left. But I do think that there needs to be a greater uh, effort to reach out into uh, oppressed communities and look at how their struggles inter- intersect with capitalism, with, with their working class status. And we need to find a way to uh, really teach these people to see the divisions within their own community and see solidarity with other people who are in the same boat, even if they aren't of the same identity. And I think that's uh, that's certainly not an easy task. Uh, it's honestly very difficult, but I think it's hard work that will be hard rewarded. Uh, sorry, I think that it's hard work that will be well rewarded and will yield great dividends for growing the left and growing a movement that can resolve these uh, systemic issues within our society. Well, I think that's as good a notice any to bring this to a close. Uh, for those who might have heard rumbling in the background throughout this recording, I am not, in fact, being attacked by a malicious spirit sent by Alex Jones, who recently noticed the SRA, and I'm just waiting for him to listen to the podcast and give me just a huge publicity spike. So if you're listening, Alex Jones, please, please mention me. I need, I need the views, man. I need the views. Um, for those who have stuck it out and listened to this very special episode, I thank you for listening. Uh, I'll be bringing out more of this with other guests in the future. There's plenty of folks to draw upon with their own unique experiences and thoughts. I certainly don't want to take up all of your time. Uh, yes, I, eventually. If, when we're making the big chapo bucks, I'll be happy to bring you on full time. We'll, we'll split it. 50000 a month for each of us sounds... Uh, I'd oh, be, that sounds great. I'd, I'd be more than happy to provide that split. So, uh, again, these will be Patreon episodes. This one is going out for the public consumption, but for in the future, these will be found on my Patreon page, hosted through Patreon or whatever, depending on how that works. I still have to look into that. Um, but I hope you all enjoyed this episode. And if you would like to view more in the future, you can visit patreon.com slash socialist RA podcast for such fantastic episodes such as these. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alex, for having me on once again. And uh, solidarity forever. And don't forget to seize the means of production. <laughs>